0: It was a wild weekend in the world of college basketball as three of the top four teams in the country went down. Two of those three lost at home, and of those, the only remaining unbeaten team in the country at the time suffered their first defeat of the season on their own home court against a team that was 500 for the season. Meanwhile, in the Big East... Some teams continued to surge, others continued to falter, while one team picked up their first win in exactly five weeks. And I've got that coverage and so much more here on this brand new episode of The Igloo. Welcome inside The Igloo, I'm Tim Best, and what happened last weekend? Some surprises, other results you kind of predicted, and then coming up this week, it's going to be kind of an abbreviated slate like we had just a couple of weeks ago where there were only three games on the schedule and coming up this week, also only three games. One on Tuesday and a double header on FS1 on Wednesday. And also coming up on this episode, got a huge interview. I know I mentioned the Lavin one was huge last week, but I think this one might eclipse that as I've got former Seton Hall Pirate, a two-time Biggies champion there, and the current general manager of the Denver Nuggets, one of the best teams in the NBA, Arturis Karnaschovas will join me for this episode. I got a great interview with him talking about coming all the way to the States from Lithuania and obviously building up one of the youngest but most talented rosters in the entire NBA. So let's talk about what happened last weekend, shall we? Starting with Marquette in Providence, the Friars... Still trying to build up their tournament hopes for an at-large. And with the way they've been playing, it looks like they've definitely been doing so. Beating Seton Hall at home on February 15th. And then winning a big one at Georgetown in their last game before a Saturday showdown at home. Against the then number 19 team in the nation, Marquette. Golden Eagles coming off a home loss against Creighton in their previous game. This was going to be a good one. I mean, Marcus Howard against the Friars. I mean, keep in mind, he set the Big East single game scoring mark that he eventually broke himself last year. So he did it in 2018 against the Friars at the dunk by scoring 52 points. Marcus had a big game on Saturday, dropping 38 points, but again, he got no help. And Providence pounced on it. Providence pounced on it big time, and the one thing you can always expect with Providence, balance and depth. And they had both on display on Saturday afternoon with Gus Johnson on the call. Lawan Pipkins had a team-high 24 points, and then on top of that, he with five other Friars in double figures. Diallo struggled from the field, one of nine, but he had 10 points in all 40 minutes he played. David Duke had 15, A.J. Reeves with 11, and then off the bench, Khalif Young and Malik White each had 10. As a team, Providence over 50% from the field, While shooting 40% from downtown, Marquette was just 30% from deep and just over 40% from the field. The only other Golden Eagle in double figures came off the bench, and that was Greg Elliott with 10. Outside of that, McEwen only got off three shot attempts, scored seven points. Marcus Howard took over half of their shots. He had 25 of their 49 shot attempts. He shot 10 of 25, just three of nine from three-point land. But from the charity stripe, he got there a lot and made 15 of 17. And then Theo John had 6 points and 6 rebounds. Sakar Adams struggled mightily. He had just 2. Jamal Kane off the bench with 7, and he also fouled out. And then Jace Johnson in 12 minutes, just 2 points, and didn't grab a single rebound. So Providence, another upset of a ranked opponent at the dunk. They win 84-72. to 72. For their third straight win. Their ninth win in conference. And according to Joe Lennardi, They get some on the right side of the bubble. As one of the last four in. With the way that they've been playing. At nine and six in conference. According to Lenardi, It outweighs. The ugly non-conference late that they had. Where you saw them lost. To. Long Beach State. The College of Charleston. Penn at home. Just to name a few. At Northwestern also. Well, the good has apparently outweighed the bad, and the Friars look to continue their momentum into the home stretch of the season. Again, they got three games to go, like several teams, at this stage of the season. I'm going to get into that more later on. Meanwhile, following that up with Villanova, number 12 in the country, at Xavier. Xavier shocked Villanova last year and dominated them defensively. This year is the other way around with Villanova manhandling Xavier on the defensive end, holding Xavier to just 55 points, which is the lowest point total Villanova's given up in a conference game this season. They had a 9-point edge of the break. It was 30-21. Both teams with 34 in the second half. Villanova rolls to a 64-55 win. Sadiq Bey had a game-high 22 points, 4 of 9 from deep, 8 of 17 from the field. Jermaine Samuel stepped up big with 17 points and 8 rebounds. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, even though he only had four points, he did come up big on the glass with 12 rebounds. And Villanova, despite only four from their leading scorer, Colin Gillespie, they were able to answer strongly. Uh, Justin Moore with 13 points and six rebounds. Meanwhile, for Xavier, three muskies and double figures, Jones, Marshall, and Scruggs. Jones with another double-double, 17-14. Marshall had 15-8, and, and and he played all 40 minutes, too. And then Paul Scruggs with 10 points, 3 of 7 from the field. And he misses only three-point attempt while also grabbing eight rebounds. And then Kiki Tandy with just six off the bench. Quentin Gooden with just two. Zach Fremantle also scored just two points. And then Jason Carter only had three. So a poor shooting day for Xavier. And it cost them. And funny thing is Villanova actually shot just 24% from deep, which is worse than Xavier's 25%. But overall from the field, Villanova 41% from the field and also only took five free throw attempts, but they made all five of them. Again, Villanova, your winner, 64-55 to 55 to get to 10-3 and three in the Big East. 10-4 uh, in the Big East, excuse me, and 21-6 and overall. Now, I mentioned the team that had not won in exactly five weeks. Now, as everybody knows, was the DePaul Blue Demons. Coming in at just 1-12 and 12 in the Big East. Desperately needing a win. And taking on a Georgetown team that was also desperate for a win, trying to stay on the right side of the bubble... Losing Mac McClung due to a re-aggravated injury to his foot. However, they did get Omer Yurtsev back, and it was an evenly matched game at the break. It was 36 apiece. But DePaul ends up pulling away to win this one, 74-68. Leading the way for the Blue Demons, Charlie Moore with 20 points and 7 assists. Romeo Weems stepped up big with 19 points, 4 of 5 from distance as well. Jalen Butts with 10 points, and then Paul Reed stepped up with a double-double, 12 and 10 for the junior from Orlando. Meanwhile, for Georgetown, Terrell Allen had the game high with 21 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists, 7 of 14 shooting. Javon Blair struggled, man. 1 of 10 from the field, 1 of 7 from distance. Finished with just 4 points, and then... Off the bench, Wahab and Igahofe combined for just six off the bench. Jamarco Pickett with 19, and then Omer Yurt, seven in his first game back. Just five points, eight rebounds, one of seven from the field. And then Jagan Mosley only took four shots the whole game. One of two from D, three for four from the field, but he had 13 points and made all six of his free throws. And I think that's the dagger in Georgetown's tournament resume. I think that shoots down any and all hopes this team had of making the tournament an at large. They're going to have to go on a tear, somehow, some way, and they're going to have to do it without Mac McClung. In all likelihood, if they want to do that, as they now sit at 15 and 12, and 5 and 10 in the and 5 and 9 in the Big East, excuse me. Meanwhile, the game I was in town for: Seton Hall, number 16 in the nation, hosting St. John's. And St. Hall, for the first time in quite a while, dominated the game start to finish. They were up 14 at the break, and I think with about seven minutes left in the half, in the first half, they'd only give it up eight points. So Sean Hall ends up winning 81 to 65, a dominant effort from start to finish. Five pirates in double figures including four starters. Miles Powell struggled from deep, 2 of 11, but he did go 4 of 7 inside the arc. He had 18 points to go with 5 rebounds. Mamu stepped up big again, 16 points, 10 rebounds, another double-double, 5 of 9 from the field. Romero Gill, perfect from the field, 6 for 6, 6 rebounds. 12 points and just a plethora plethora of dunks. Got a couple lobs in there. He also banked one in off the glass for a nice layup. The Jamaican sensation continues to deliver as he's right up there and probably the front runner for being biggest most improved and arguably defensive player of the year as well. Jared Roden had 14 points, 4 of 5 shooting, 3 of 4 from downtown. And Quisumbing Knight struggled, five points, but he had six assists. And then off the bench, Miles Kale had—I um, can't believe I blended Kale and Powell. Miles My- Kale, ten points, three of six from the field, including an exclamation point, three sixty on a fast break to end the game. As for St. John's, LJ Figueroa had the game high with 19 points and really not much help outside of that. Julian Champney stepped up with 14 points and 11 rebounds. Josh Roberts had 8 points and 10 rebounds. Greg Williams struggled with just 2. Rasheem Dunn had 11, a quiet 11 at that. Marcellus Erlington was kept at bay with just 6 points and then Nick Rutherford chipped in 5 but fouled out late in the second half. Red Storms held it just under 34% from the field, 25% from deep. Meanwhile, Seton Hall, 48% from the field. Three-point range, they struggled, only 8 of 28. But they did win the rebounding battle, 41-39. And also, they dished out 19 assists on 27 made field goals compared to St. John's dishing out 9 on 24 makes. And then the most dominant effort of the weekend... Butler, I think, came into this one demoralized after they were beat at the buzzer by Seton Hall on Wednesday. Creighton just riding high, just on a tear. At uh, I believe they've won, entering this one, they had won four in a row and eight of nine. And Creighton just dominated this one from start to finish. And they were led by Marcus Zigorowski, who became the first player in Creighton history to go 7 of 7 from deep. 25 points. He actually, shockingly, went 2 of 5 inside the arc. Christian Bishop had a monster game, 19 points, 7 rebounds, and 5 assists for the sophomore from Lee Summit, Missouri. Tyshawn Alexander had 15 points to go along with four assists, and Mitch Balick only nine points, but he dished out six assists and grabbed six rebounds. And that was able to kind of wipe away the fact that Creighton's bench was kind of quiet. Denzel Mahoney only had three points, and Kelvin Jones had four. Meanwhile, a couple guys that normally didn't get to see the court a lot you know, you had Nick Zeal and uh, Jalen Wyndham coming off the bench in limited minutes and garbage time. They each got into the points column. And funny thing is, Damian Jefferson put up a goose egg, and Creighton still managed to win by 22. And at one point, they were they were doubling up Butler. It was 64 to 32. But the Blue Jays roll, 81-59. The team high for Butler was Henry Badly off the bench. He played 29 minutes and scored 13 points, 3 of 5 from distance, 5 of 8 from the field. Sean McDermott was the only other Bulldog in double figures with 10. Kamar Baldwin got hurt in this one. He came off limping late in the first half. Just 15 minutes, 7 points, 3 of 6 from the field. Aaron Thompson with just 5 in 35 minutes, 1 of 11 shooting the rock. Enzi with nine on four of five, seven rebounds, nine points. Golden, after he put up 18 against Seton Hall, he had just four on Sunday, six rebounds, two of six shooting. Butler, as a team, just shot under 38% from the field, just 30% from downtown. Creighton wasn't even 50% from the field. And then how about this from distance? 15 of 26, right around 58%. As Creighton steamrolls Butler. And Butler, how about this? After a 3-0 start in the Big East. And being 6-4 after beating Nova at the buzzer. They have now lost 4 of 5. And they're one loss away from now having 10 losses after only losing one game. Up until when they lost to Seton Hall in the middle of January. So it'll be interesting to see how Butler can possibly turn things around. Uh, They got this week off. Uh, Baba, they'll be back at home this weekend, Saturday night, against the DePaul Blue Demons. But that's quite a ways away. Coming up next, I got the interview with Arturis Karnaschovas that I mentioned before I got into my spiel. And on top of that, um, I got your midweek picks. I, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I think they're fairly easy games to pick. You got DePaul at Xavier on Tuesday. And then a doubleheader on Wednesday, St. John's at Villanova, followed by Georgetown at Marquette. So, don't go anywhere. Got the interview with Arturis Karnashova, the GM of the Denver Nuggets, coming up next right here on the Igloo. Welcome back inside the Igloo. And joining me now, he was a forward for Seton Hall from 1990 to 1994. And he is currently the general manager of one of the best teams in the entire NBA, a contender in the West, the one, the only, Arturis Karnaschovas. Arturis, it is such an honor to have you on my show today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you today?
0: Uh, I, I, I couldn't be better, man. Um, so, seeing, uh, coming from you know Eastern Europe... Uh, How in the the world do you end up in South Orange, New Jersey, playing for um, one of the best teams in the early 90s and one of the best coaches of that time, P.J. Carlissimo?
1: Well, it was a lot of coincidences, details. You know, I was the first one from... Uh, at that time, Soviet Union uh, slash Lithuania, uh, to do so to make that jump and to play college basketball. Um, um, TJ, I guess, saw me play when I was with junior team, uh, junior uh, Soviet Union national team. We did a tour uh, previous summer. Um, that would be summer of uh, 1989, and we played. 11 games uh, all over uh, the states um, To play high school all-stars in each state. So So we played a lot of friendly games. I was the captain of the team. So um, a Bunch of people saw me play and that's so They took notice and then a couple of conversations Bruno Smarchellian got involved as well Mm -hmm. and Um, and here was it on Scene
0: Hall campus. And you played on some really, really good teams uh, during your four years there and won a couple Big East championships and a couple regular season titles on top of that. And uh, your freshman year thrown right into the fire, really, and a team that, Wasn't expected to do much considering you had missed the tournament the year before, but you end up overcoming the odds, winning a a couple dramatic games in that Big East tournament uh, en route to winning the first ever Big East title in Seton Hall history and then moving on uh, to the Elite Eight before losing to a very good UNLV team that was the defending national champions at the time. Um, How memorable of a freshman year was that and what kind of stuck out to you from that first year playing for Seton Hall?
1: It was huge uh, it was huge for me uh, you know I didn't have a chance to go to prep school and make those adjustments uh, for me go to college it was the first year um, you know dealing with uh, learning the language and uh, going to class and, and at the same time playing uh, my uh, freshman year uh, of college basketball which you know for me it was a lot of adjustment in terms of game uh, game was different And then going through, you know, uh, there was there were turmoils in uh, my country as well, uh, and political changes uh, going on um, at that time in Soviet Union. So watching and you know uh, monitoring, you know, situation, talking to my parents and friends and family. So it was. uh, very interesting year and of course it was a very successful one in terms of basketball we went all the way to final eight um you know we beat a very talented team in arizona prior to uh, playing in lv you know with larry johnson greg anthony uh, stacy Ogman. so it was it was a lot of fun uh, it was uh, you know it was a year that uh seen all added a lot of uh, talented freshmen uh, uh, you know, I was one of them. And, uh, to go that far with such a young core, uh, it was,
0: it was incredible. And just to build up, I mean, 92 was another good year for you guys. You shared the regular season championship in the big East, uh, didn't win the tournament, but you did respond strongly by making it back to the second weekend of the tournament. But, um, UNLV was really good the year before when they knocked you out, but the team that knocked you out that year, uh, the Duke Blue Devils, I mean, you played them tough, but that that Duke team was arguably um that was the peak of that early ni- late eighties, early ninety run that Duke had with uh, you know, Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill. Um um what was uh just playing against. Uh, One of the greatest college basketball players ever in Christian Leitner. Um, What do you remember about playing them um, in a tight game in the spectrum?
1: Well, uh, I'll mention that, uh, you know, my freshman year when uh, we went to Final Eight, you know, we had uh, a lot of leadership that came from Anthony Avent and Oliver Taylor, Um, you know, including... Uh, key buckets in Big East Tournament and then, you know, in NCAA Tournament. So, um, fast-forwarding to uh, Spectrum and playing Duke, uh, me, individually, I had a tough year uh, because because I had a partial tear of my middle collateral. Uh, I screwed up my knee I was out, I think, for a month and a half uh, and then came back uh, late in the season uh, going to NCAA Tournament. So, I was kind of I didn't, you know, I had to play with a brace. I didn't feel very healthy, but in terms of uh, experience, it was great. Um, uh, very good Duke team, um, you know, um, and I guess we just were, you know, we didn't have that day, and we lost a very good team. So
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean like I said, Leitner was one of the, arguably one of the greatest college basketball players ever. And, and I think everyone knows what he did the very next game in that, in that building against Kentucky. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, but the following year, that was arguably the the best team that you played on during your four years, the 93 team that uh, rolled to the big East regular season and tournament championship. And it was just incredible what you guys were able to do that year with Terry setting up, the all-time scoring record, um, getting his jersey retired on senior day, and then just—I mean, I mean—this may sound a little like um, how uh, vivid I almost, but like you curb-stomped Syracuse in the in the Big E championship game that year. So, and, uh, and unfortunately, things didn't pan out in the tournament uh, where you guys were knocked out by um, a pesky Western Kentucky team down in Orlando. Uh, but what made that team so good and, uh, just playing with, uh, one of the all-time greats in seeing all history, uh, Terry deHare and then winning another Big East championship and not just beating a perennial power in Syracuse, but just dominating them.
1: Well, I think, uh, the combination of, you know, experience that we had on our team and, uh, you know, the, the talent, uh, you know, from Terry and Jerry that that were seniors that year, Um, you know, uh, we probably underestimated, um, you know, the team in the NCAA tournament, uh, Western Kentucky. Um, And of course, we regret uh, that day (laughs) till this day. Uh, it was a tough loss because the expectation was so high, especially rolling from the Big East tournament where we, uh, we beat circus in the final by 30. Um, so um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree that it was one of the best uh, seen hall teams uh, I've ever seen. So it was a amazing year, an amazing experience.
0: And, um, Obvious, so you graduated in '94, and at the same time, too, uh, that was when PJ Carlissimo uh, made the leap uh, to the NBA uh, that spring into summer, uh, where he took a job at Golden State. Um, so, obviously, moving forward, um, you know, fast forward, you know, a number of years um, after your playing career is over, um, what kind of led you to. Um, wanting to assimilate yourself into the front office and then eventually into what you're doing now being the general manager of the Denver Nuggets.
1: Well, I think, you know, while you're playing basketball, you have, you know, some ideas, but you don't, you know, you don't know what you're going to do after, after career is over. So I, after seeing all and, uh, you know, didn't work out for me. I didn't make uh, the NBA. Actually, I was cut, uh, by Milwaukee Bucks a uh, day before the season started um, and I went to Europe and I my first year I signed with Strolet, uh, uh, and this is a club in France um, had a had a decent year um, and then signed with Barcelona played in uh, played in Greece for Olympiakos and played in uh, Bologna for two years and then I finished again two years in Barcelona and retired in 2002 so you know thinking that you know i'm gonna take my time to decide what i'm gonna do after my career i three months later um, i took a job with a financial firm in new york city and you know wanted you know, wanted to change, uh, you know, athlete's mentality in terms of, you know, finances, and, uh, spending and lifestyle and all this stuff. So it took me, um, so I worked uh, a year for that firm uh, until I uh, got an offer from uh, NBA uh, League office um, by Kim Bahuni, who actually uh, had a, a huge part of me coming to Scene Hall. She's a senior vice president of basketball operations and in the league office. So she offered uh, uh, me a job uh, in the league office uh, because the number of international players uh, were growing and uh, uh, the exposure of uh, the NBA as a league internationally was growing as well. So uh, it was fun times. And uh, I spent five years in the league office. uh, at that time, Stu Jackson was the head of basketball operations, and I was thinking, and he was my boss as well on the international side.
0: And now working in the Big uh, East, strangely enough.
1: Well, yes, exactly. Stu uh, Stu's a good friend of mine. and uh, um, So, you know, while working for the league, I was exposed to uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, basketball, you know, business of basketball, uh, um, would that be financial? Would that be cap? Would that be players? Would that be contracts? Would that be, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, running basketball camps, like, uh, basketball without borders. Um, so, you know, that took also, you know, that's where I start getting into evaluating players and, uh, projecting players and so forth. And then after five years in the league, um, I, Kind of uh, wanted to uh, jump on the uh, team side, um, and that's when the conversation started. And I uh, connected with the uh, Houston Rockets um, and uh, took scouting job with Houston Rockets. Uh, it took uh, me five years, um, uh, great five years with the with Houston. Uh, got a lot of experience. Uh, my role grew uh with organization i was again uh a lot of learning um you know with daryl Morey, sam hinkey and gerson rosas um, the, the you know obviously great executives in our league and then in 2013 um uh, i got a call from uh tim conley who just took a job with the denver nuggets and uh, and uh, Josh Kroenke. So uh, since 2013, uh, this is my seventh year in Denver, and uh, uh, we're doing pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah, you've been doing very, very well. I mean, yes, it took some time, but the trajectory of uh, the team that you've assembled has been really, really good. I mean, some of the young talent, I mean, Murray, Jokic, I mean, those. I mean, obviously, those are the two prevalent stars. But, um, and obviously, the term "trust the process." I mean, that's more in terms of you know, like that's a term that Philly obviously coined with you know their rebuild. Uh, but for you in Denver, obviously, it wasn't obviously the kind of rebuilding this to the same extent that obviously in Philadelphia. But to build that team up from being, you know, like towards the bottom of the West and to being a legitimate, you know, NBA final contender, um, you know, what, the process of doing that, uh, uh, what's it like in just um, the year-to-year uh, grind of, you know, rising up year by year?
1: Well, you know, to to build something, it takes time, you know, and I give credit to, you know, uh, to our ownership and Cronkies, and, you know, to be patient and, you know, like, You know, it took, uh, you know, three years to kind of see those fruit, you know, fruits of labor. And and then the fourth and fifth year, we saw a lot of, uh, um, you know, improvement. And then, you know, uh, last year was the first year that we were in the playoffs and we went um, two long series, a seven game series with uh, San Antonio, with Portland, so, um, you know, this group is still pretty young, you know, Murray just turned, uh, 23, Nicole is 25. Uh, you know, Gary Harris is 25. And just, uh, you know, you know, Michael Porter's obviously his second year in the league. And, uh, uh we've got, you know, our vets, uh, you know, Paul Millsap has been, uh, great part of this group, uh, and balance, uh, for us and, uh, Will Barton, um, and then, you know, finding guys and, you know, in the second round, like Montu, you know, Montu Morris and, and then, uh, Tory Craig who play actually played in Australia and took a international route to, to make it to our league. Um, so I mean, we've, we, we definitely, to try to build our team through the draft and uh by adding other pieces like you know like uh, let's say jeremy grant we we acquired in uh, in the trade so you're constantly looking for opportunities in trade and then free agency uh when we got Paul those up um, so it's uh you know it's it's uh, you know it's a work that uh, requires a lot of patience and uh you know and obviously give a lot of credit to our coaching staff and our players um, for, you know, later success last year and this year, so yeah, hopefully we'll, uh, uh, we'll you know, we obviously fighting right now, we've got 26 uh, 25 games left uh, before the playoffs and we're fighting for seeding right now in the West uh, very tough confidence uh, you know, every game matters, uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where we're going to end up in a playoff seating and uh you know looking forward to the playoffs
0: yeah and and as a gm like how rewarding does it feel when you know these moves that you make uh you know pay off whether it be in the draft signing free agents and you know even making trades like the one you mentioned where you got jeremy grant and the payoff it's paid so far
1: well you know being in front office it's it's amazing how obviously little <laughs> control you have and outcomes of the game. I mean, you you can't shoot threes for them. You can't, you know, schematically, they, you know, obviously coaches uh, uh, control, you know, practices and, you know, uh, and the environment in the locker room. And, you know, you as an executive, obviously, you know, uh, control the, you know, the draft, the trades, the free agency, the pieces that you're adding, but everything obviously goes uh, together with, uh, you know, you know, you work together with coaching staff as well. Um, so it's uh, you know, it's it's a long process and it's fun. Um, but again, you know, it's it's it it's, uh, it, it, it's nerve wracking you know, to watch every game, uh, but it's it's a lot of fun at the same time. All
0: right, uh, and um, obviously, you know. Um, we were talking about this beforehand, but I you know, and you were you were obviously the first uh, domino in terms of European players to um, arrive at Seton Hall. And, you know, there has been a long list of names that have followed you, um obviously, with the cur- uh, all the way down to the current team with Sandro Mamu um and then even before him, guys like Pat Auda, uh, Harold Carlos, uh, just to name a few. Um, so uh, from your perspective, um, what's it been like just, um, if you've if you followed it all, just seeing the continued influx of European talent uh, into uh, Seton Hall's rosters that have followed you?
1: Well, it's just like, um, you know, the number of players in the league and, you know, in, in NBA grew. Uh, uh, the, you know, obviously the number of players coming from international joining college teams uh, grew as well. Um, recently, it was announced that uh, Rimas Kokewas is going to be inducted into uh, Athletic Hall of Fame. Um, he's also a good friend of mine and a uh, very good player. I think he deserves more credit for not only what he's done in Seen Hall, but what he's done after. Um, had a long uh, international career and what he's doing now. Uh, has his own uh, charitable organization that, uh, you know, helping kids with. With cancer and stuff like that, so you know, so there there were a lot of uh, international guys that uh, came through, uh, you know, program Seton Hall program that been uh, very successful.
0: Uh, people. yeah, and um, I and to go back on uh, this current Seton Hall team, uh, they won at Villanova a couple weeks ago for the first time since your senior year and uh, and the anniversary of that previous win is actually is actually coming up this week um, is it kind of crazy to think that um, this year's team did uh, finally won at Nova for the first time since uh, you know all the way back to, to your your senior year
1: it's hard to believe um, but I'm glad they did it so they don't have to you know remember about you know early 90s uh, you know. It's it's, it's a very talented team. Um, Kevin has done an unbelievable job. They have enough talent to, uh, you know, so far they're 20-7, and and, uh, they're doing very well. And I'm happy to watch and to watch their games. They have uh, three games coming up, I think, to finish uh, the season before uh, the Geese Conference tournament. So, uh, tough three games. So, uh, hopefully, they'll get it done.
0: I mean, I mean, I would try to side sound biased because I mean, yeah, I'm a scene on guy like yourself. I mean, obviously, I want to see the same. Obviously, to see some good results in those last three, it's a gauntlet. But it, but it certainly doesn't mean that they can't succeed in it. Uh, but uh, just to wrap this all up, obviously, you were in the Big East, and while it was still, you know, trying to grow, and obviously, it grew even bigger with even more teams joining, and obviously football kind of took over with teams like Miami, Virginia Tech, joining the conference and even West Virginia, and then obviously for it to be racked down back to a basketball-centered conference like it was um, when it was first founded over 40 years ago. Um, Overall, what does the Big East uh, mean to you and, and just memories that you made in it? in, um, quote-unquote, the old Big East and what's it been like to uh, see this new Big East uh, take on a life of its own and become uh, and assert itself as still one of the elite conferences in all of college basketball?
1: Well, I mean, you know, if we remember, you know, the teams that were part of Big East at that time were like, you know, Syracuse and, you know, UConn and uh, those were also... Great rivalries, but uh, I think it's a cyclical thing uh, from conference to conference. Uh, but I think uh, Big East, it's, uh, it's a good time now for Big East, and there are a lot of teams from Big East that will make it to uh, NCAA tournament. I think and, uh, it's uh, it's fun times for Big East. So um, just you know, uh, with uh, you know changing things with now television, you can watch every game. Anywhere you want, would that be on the phone? Would that be on TV? I think it's uh, it's good times for uh, to be uh, a basketball fan.
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly wasn't able to do that while uh, during your playing days. And you know, you kind of uh, any time you were on TV back in those days, you were kind of uh, lucky to even have the opportunity to um, be seen in front of a national TV audience, right?
1: sports channel i think um that uh, televised every game that we had and i think uh raftery and uh mike breen were you know commentating every game um obviously those are
0: <laughs> legends yeah and, uh,
1: in broadcasting and uh, we see them still uh, uh you know commentating games today so it's it's those were interesting times, uh, but yes, I remember being on, uh, I think uh, even I remember the grid uh, channel, sports channel, I think it was on uh, like a 22 or something like this on a cable.
0: Wow, you're really kicking it old school now.
1: Oh, yeah. So.
0: But Arturis, our, our it was such a pleasure to have you on talking about uh, your memories from Seton Hall and obviously uh, your role in building one of the – Highest-rising teams in the NBA, um, the Denver Nuggets, one of the most pleasant surprises over the last couple of years in the league. Arturis, uh, thank you for joining me today, and uh, best of luck with you and your team the rest of the way.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and go Pirates.
0: Go Pirates is right, man. All right, without further ado, here are my midweek picks Only three games on the docket. I mentioned them before the interview with Arturis Karnaschovas. DePaul at Xavier. 7 Eastern CBS Sports Network on Tuesday. Xavier coming off a home loss against Nova in which they just did not play well offensively. And credit Villanova's defense for really limiting them in every way. I think Xavier's going to bounce back. I mean, I know DePaul's finally back in the win column after they beat Georgetown Saturday night in Chicago. But in the Centos Center, I know DePaul beat them at the Centos Center last year, but times have changed. No Max Struess, no Eli Kane, no Femi Alujibi. And on the road, I mean, DePaul, they haven't won a road game in conference play yet this year. So what makes me think that this is going to change now? uh Gimme Xavier and I think they're going to win this one pretty handily. I mean, they won by 8 in Chicago. I'm I'm saying it might be right around uh 16. Uh, it could be a ugly one, but I think DePaul's going to find a way to stay competitive for most of the game, but Xavier's going to pull away late and win handily. Now, Wednesday Doubleheader on FS1 starting at 6 30 at Finner Pavilion. St. John's at number 12, Villanova. Wildcats just curb stomped St. John's in the garden back on January the 28th. And I'm expecting more of the same at the Finn on Wednesday. I mean, St. John's is really at a loss without Mustafa Heron. I know they beat Providence earlier. Yeah, I mean, right off the heels of that injury and him announcing that he's going to be out the rest of the year. St. John's is just running out of gas. I mean, you saw it at Seton Hall. They just didn't have it. Yes, they made some pushes, but they can't sustain them. So, I guess a team like Villanova, a team that likes to go full throttle for 40 minutes and doesn't care how much they beat you by, I think Villanova's... Going to do more of the same compared to what they did in the Garden on January 28th. I say Villanova's going to win another one big over St. John's. Meanwhile, at 8.30 on FS1, Georgetown coming off a devastating loss to DePaul. Marquette, 500 in conference, 7-7. Seven and seven. They've fallen out of the top 25, as has Butler after losing two games this week, uh, this past week, excuse me. But Marquette being back at home against a Georgetown team that suffered a demoralizing defeat against a DePaul team that hadn't won in five weeks up until that time. I, I think it's going to be pretty simple. Marquette's going to win this game. I think they had a sour taste from their mouth from a year ago where Georgetown beat Marquette in Milwaukee on senior day, a game of which Marquette with a win after Villanova had lost earlier in the day to Seton Hall, Marquette could have won the big East regular season title. to at least get a share of it, which would have also given them the number one seed in the big East tournament. But unfortunately that didn't happen. I think Marquette, Yes, they beat him in D.C., but it would be even better for Marcus Howard to beat him in Milwaukee after what happened last year as a prelude as Marquette gets ready for number 13 Seton Hall for his final home game coming up on Saturday. So I think Marquette's going to handle this one. Fairly easily, but Georgetown, you know how they are. They're a pesky team. They're going to scrap, and they're going to claw. But Marcus Howard and hopefully the rest of his supporting cast, if they show up like they didn't against Providence on Saturday, if that happens, they're going to get the job done. That's simple. And then meanwhile, I mean, I forgot to mention this, Creighton is just Red hot right now, they are now number 10 in the country after being picked to finish 7th in the preseason poll in the Big East. I think it's all but guaranteed unless something catastrophic happens in their last three games that Greg McDermott is going to be your Big East coach of the year when they announce the awards in New York City in a couple weeks at the Big East tournament. So, I mean this this was these were kinda short, not gonna lie. So that is gonna allow me to delve into Um your icebreaker for this episode. And I'm gonna be talking about kinda what I experienced uh going back to Seton Hall last weekend. Um I was obviously at the game Sunday, but I mean I wasn't there for just the game, you know? If you watched SportsCenter that night, uh, you would know that Seton Hall had a pregame reception, which was like a retirement party for one of the greatest sportscasters to ever live. One of the original SportsCenter anchors, Bob Lee, who was with ESPN literally since day one up until his retirement this past summer. 40 years of working with the worldwide leader in sports. Finally retiring after 40 years after he had launched, you know, outside the lines and all of his incredible work sports center. And obviously, like I mentioned outside the lines and building that up into the tremendous program that it became for three decades. And where did Bob Lee get his start? Seton Hall University. He was a class in 1976, called many a basketball games back in the day when, ironically, another broadcasting legend in his own right, Bill Raftery, he was the head coach of the Pirates from 1970 to 81. So Bob Lee was broadcasting during his tenure. Um, Raftery was there during all four years that he was also at the Hall. So Bob came out of retirement to broadcast one final game doing the second half of St. John's and Seton Hall on Seton Hall's student-run radio station, WSOU, a station that I was lucky enough to be part of in a fraternity. Now, I know it's still technically ruled like an extracurricular, but it's more like a fraternity just with everyone you meet and working with all those people and the alumni you connect with. Bob, uh, Matt Laughlin, who I talked with earlier this year on the Igloo, who's the radio play-by-play voice of the Devils. Um, You also have uh, John Brickley, who is now with ESPN, who's been there for quite a few years now. I mean... The list of names, if you want to look it up, it's pretty incredible. It really is, if you really want to look far back into in you know into just the legends of the broadcasting industry, whether it be in sports or anywhere else. It, it, it's simply remarkable. It's, it's, inc- it's something to marvel at, and that was a big reason why I even chose to come to Seton Hall. Was to be a part of that, to follow in the footsteps of guys like Bob Lee, because he set the standard, not just with WSOU, but in sports casting in general, and he held that standard for four decades. The consummate professional, and not just a legend of a broadcaster, but a legend of a man, really. I mean, I had the pleasure of speaking with him at the 70th anniversary of WSOU. When they had a dinner to celebrate it back in 2018, my senior year of college. And just talking and learning from him was just so incredible. Just the knowledge that he was able to share with me. I just wanted to absorb and just listen to all these stories and all this advice he had for me. And he's a major inspiration as to why I'm doing this now and why I try to... uh, Uphold the kind of standards that he held himself to in terms of having integrity as a broadcaster and as a journalist, you know? So, Bob, all I can say from the bottom of my heart thank you for setting the gold standard at WSOU and for sports broadcasters everywhere. For all of your work at ESPN, taking it from the ground up, and helping make it become the worldwide leader in sports. And like the ghost of Babe Ruth said in the Sandlot, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And Bob Lee, like I said, not just a legend of a broadcaster, but a legendary man. And I couldn't think of more for the contributions he's made to Seton Hall, WSOU, and the world of sports broadcasting. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Igloo. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to our Tourist Karnashovis for joining me all the way from Denver, talking about his Seton Hall career and how he has built up uh, one of the best and youngest rosters in the NBA out. In the Mile High City. So we got a new episode coming out Friday. A huge weekend slate coming up with Seton Hall taking on Marquette in Marcus Howard's final home game. Got Villanova hosting Providence as well, and then on top of that, Butler just trying to right the ship as they host DePaul also on Saturday. And on top of that, you also have a couple Sunday games. Creighton looking to stay hot against a struggling St. John's team at Carnaseca, And then Xavier in Georgetown, a battle of one team on the right side of the bubble and another on the wrong side. So that should be an interesting weekend of hoops. Really looking forward to it, and I'll preview that all on my new episode of the Igloo coming up on Friday. So until then, this is Timmy Ice signing off. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on Friday.